Welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning. Good morning. So good to be able to meet together this morning, and I want to thank Daniel and Kelsey for the use of their home and all the all the work and effort to uh, to make it ready for us and get everything prepared. You will open your Bibles to Genesis. We're going to be looking uh, in chapter eight and chapter nine this morning. I'd like to uh, just read uh, from chapter eight uh, down through. Um, Verse 1 down through verse 19, just to give us uh, the context this morning. You found your place there in Genesis chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were closed, the rain from the heavens were restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. And at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Eret, and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. And in the 10th month of the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. And at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the windows of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. He went to and fro until the waters were dried up on the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. And he waited another seven days and again sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening and behold, in her mouth was freshly plucked olive leaf. So, uh, so Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove and she did not return to him anymore. In the six hundredth and first year, in the first month, and the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. And God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons, uh, and your sons' wives with you, Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, the birds and animals and every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And so Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them, every beast, every creeping thing and every bird and everything that moved on the earth with, uh, went out by families from the ark. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would uh, just impress upon our hearts your grace. 
And I pray, Father, as we study and think about uh, what happened in that day, that we would uh, would see our own day and your plans for us, those that uh, know you as Savior. We thank you for your grace towards us, your deliverance, your salvation. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, <clears throat> we looked last week, uh, Daniel, in his message... We saw this first half of this flood event and the building up to um, chapter 8. We see the destruction of the earth, the, the flood that came. And one of, the, one of the themes from that section was the, the righteousness, as, as Daniel preached. And, um, and we see the obedience of Noah. And it's, it's one of the things that's uh, repeated in that section uh, that Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him to do. And, and as I thought about that, I, I thought that we as believers in Christ, as Christians, uh, that should just be the normal part of our life that we would obey the Lord. Not that we ever get it 100% right or, or can be you know, sinless or, or always obedient because we fail the Lord continually it seems but as as believers that are walking with Christ in faith that should be the natural desire of our heart to obey <coughs> the Lord it ought to be the direction of our life to obey him and and one of the things that makes this uh, really uh, stand out this statement that that Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him and that's repeated uh, a few times in that chapter from chapter 6 and verse 9, right up through to um, the end of um, chapter 7, is that Noah um, had a, a lot of obstacles to his faith, a lot of challenges to his faith as you think about it. Yet he had a lot of reasons to, um, to doubt from a human perspective. You, you just think about some things he had to overcome as he would put his faith in the Lord. Think about the a global flood event. It's something that he had never uh, never seen before, obviously. Something had never happened before. And just the scale of that, even from Noah's limited perspective of what that would, would involve, would have required a faith that was a, a true definition of faith. <laughs> in other words, you can't see it. You can't imagine it, even. Um, a global flood. Then think about the size of the ark. These dimensions the Lord gave him. He told him to build this ark. Uh, it was last year, um, back around at the middle of the year when we were back. We we went. We were had a church meeting up in Ohio, and we went down to um, uh, what state was we in? Uh, I just I just drew a blank. But anyway. Alabama, was it Alabama where the ark's at? No, it's in Kentucky. It's in Kentucky. Yeah, we we went across the uh, the border there to Kentucky, and uh, the answers in uh, yeah answers in Genesis is built this um, life size ark. I know you may have seen pictures about it or heard about it. Anyway, 
I knew about these dimensions and I, you know, had studied this and had a picture in my mind of how big the ark was, but when you see it in person, <laughs> it's like, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty amazing. And if we had our projector today, I could show you a picture of Sharon standing in front of this ark. <laughs> it's like, is Sharon there? Is he there? <laughs> it was like, it's so massive. Uh, it's uh, 140 meters long, and that's, you know, roughly uh, one and a half rugby fields in length. So kind of, you know, get that in your mind. And uh, the height of 14 meters high, that's approximately four-story building height. So just imagine, you know, the size of a four-story building that's a, a, a one and a half rugby fields long. And, and you begin to get an idea of the scale of, of this building. But when you, when you think about Noah, you have to think he had to build this. <laughs> His sons are obviously helping him. And, and the wives, they probably helped build too. I mean, they must have all got engaged in this project, a year, over a year project of building um, this ark. And they didn't have the equipment that we do today, the electric and all that. All this stuff would have had been chopped and cut. And, you know, I can't, I can't imagine that. Noah must have been quite a skilled builder before, I don't know what his trade was before, but if not, God must have, uh, by His grace, given him special wisdom in his, in his family to be able to carry out such a task of building uh, this ark. And so there's this incredible uh, task before him. And then on top of that, the opposition of the day. We, we in a previous section you know, studied about the evil of that day and uh, the violence of that day. And it was only really by God's grace that Noah and his family would have been able to, to survive that. Uh, but the ridicule and the opposition and the, and the scorn of someone building this mammoth building, they must have imagined that Noah had lost his mind. He's, he's gone crazy. He's building this big boat. Uh, for what purpose? And... Um, and they hear his preaching and they just laugh in scorn for what for us would be a lifetime or plus a lifetime. Um, but, but Noah found grace to uh, continue in faith and believing. And then just a, a final thought was the long period of time that he had to wait. I mean, the, the building of the ark took, you know, over a year, and then uh, the, the period of the flood that uh, we have the record of 150 days of this, uh, so it's five, basically five months of rain and the, the waters, you know, the deeps being broken up in uh, this flood, and, uh, and there, you know, if you're seasick, you're just, <laughs> you're just in bad, you're just out of luck because you're floating around, bobbling around this whole uh, time. And, uh, and then, as we, in the passage that we, we read about, it took even longer for the water to completely dry up. Another, another 150 days, and then add to that another 70 days in total. So it's about, it's about seven more months before they actually get out of the ark. 
and so a lot of waiting, a lot of waiting, and uh, that affects our faith, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. When things don't happen mm-hmm. that we're praying about in the time that we expect it to happen, I mean, really, you know, we, we sometimes think, God, you know, why aren't you answering my prayer? And, and it's only been a, a couple of days or a week or a month or maybe a year we get impatient and our faith just kind of dries up. So Noah really stands out as, as an individual who obeyed the Lord and believed in the word of the Lord. And it ought to challenge us. Not that we set Noah up as you know some uh, perfect person, but as a hero of the faith that we can learn from, that we can be challenged by, knowing that it's the grace of God that uh, enabled him and strengthened him and that he's someone who, who walked with God in obedience. As we come to chapter 8 then, in verse 1, we have a turning point in this flood event. Uh, it's the, the turning point in the, in the whole passage that tells us about it. And we read there in verse 1, but God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. Now, does, does that mean that God got busy doing things in heaven and then He kind of, you know, it came to, oh, I, f- I forgot about Noah and, and, and that flood, you know, on the earth. No, God didn't forget about Noah. But this phrase, God remembered, is a, it's almost a figurative figurative language it's it's a way of indicating that god is ready to act and we see that especially in the old testament and usually when this is used he's acting in grace towards someone uh, someone that has trusted him for example uh, it's used of abraham god remembered abraham in the saving of lot uh, also of Rachel, God remembered Rachel and gave her a child after all the heartache she had in waiting and waiting and um, God remembered. And then also again of Abraham, God remembered Abraham to deliver Israel from Egypt. And when I say remembered Abraham, we're going to be getting there soon, the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that he made uh, to Abraham. But when we get to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 16 and in 18, we read there that God remembered Babylon to bring judgment upon them. So this idea from our perspective, when we remember something, it's because we forgot it. <laughs> and we forget you know, a lot of things. But God's not like us in that He is able to forget something as if it slipped his mind. But, but God is indicating that God is now turning his attention to bring some action for that person or towards that person. And so here, as we read in this event, God is now he's a, a turning point in this event, and God is now going to, to cause this uh, rain to stop. He's caused the the waters to begin to uh, subside and dry up from the earth. But they still had to wait a long time. 
And as, as you get to uh, chapter 8 and verse 20, look there with me as they are, have, uh, are, are leaving the ark. Verse 20, this is chapter 8 and verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. You know, with, when Noah and his family and all the animals finally walked down that ramp, to exit the ark, there must have been great joy. <laughs> After being all that time for, for a year, think about it, longer than most of us will live for, for a year being on this ark, you know, and they were busy, obviously, but still, it must, must have been quite stir-crazy. <laughs> After you know, And I imagine there would have been low times, times of real discouragement, maybe some complaining going on, about the hardship and the just wanting to get off of this ark, you know. And with this ever end, there must have been times, especially in those five months of rain and storm, they must have, you know, wondered, is God really going to, you know, save us from this destruction? So we don't know all of those things. We don't have the record of that. We can ask Noah when we get to heaven, you know, what it was really like on the ark. But they must have been great joy when they come off of that ark. You know, sometimes you watch movies and things, you see where people, you know, have been in some experience on a plane or on a ship and they get to dry land and they just fall down on the ground and kiss the ground. They're so happy, you know, to, to finally, you know, have their feet on, on dry land again. Well, when Noah gets his feet on the dry land, he looks up. And he builds an altar. And so we see this first act of worship from Noah on behalf of his family. And it was, a, it was in the form of an offering, an offering, a burnt offering unto the Lord. And no doubt it was a thanksgiving kind of offering. A thanksgiving for their deliverance from this judgment of flood. But this kind of offering was likely also a, an atonement kind of offering where Noah was acting as a, a priest for his family and offering an atonement for uh, his sins and the sins of his um, family. And this, uh, in verse 21, we see God really here in verse uh in this verse 21, 22, we see God really, uh, God's thoughts here, uh, where it says that God said in his heart, verse 21, in other words, at this stage, it's recording God's thoughts about what's happening. But it, but it says there that it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And, and, that, uh, and that phrase there is used over and over again in the Old Testament, especially. With the, with the sacrificial system of the fact that God was pleased with the offering that was bring, or that, 
or that he accepted the offering. It was pleasing unto him. And so you have this, this phrase, this pleasing aroma. And this, this sacrificial system would, um, would continue, and as you get to Moses, it would be refined and, and, and more specifications about the types of offerings and when and all the details. But in the, in the eternal plan of God, uh, these, all of these offerings would, would point to Christ. And in, and in God's plan, He would come and die for us in our place to satisfy the righteous requirements of a holy God concerning our sin. Because we are sinners, we are condemned before God. And in the offering of Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, the sinless Son of God, Christ sees that offering and He's pleased with that. He's accepted that. He's He's propitiated the, 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 the New Testament word we have of propitiation. Look, uh, well, I'll, I'll read for you in Hebrews um, 2 and verse 17. Speaking of Jesus, he says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In other words, he came to be a man, came to earth, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of His people. And so like a priest of the Old Testament, He makes this offering, but He doesn't bring an animal. He brings Himself as the offering. And this offering would be uh, the pinnacle of all the offerings of the Old Testament. All of those pointed to this, this coming of Christ, this one Hebrews later in Hebrews 10 verse 12 says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, his offering was the, the final offering to be made uh, to atone for sin. It's the, son, the sinless Son of God. And in Ephesians 5 and verse 2, we are admonished to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There we have that phrase used again to speak of God's view of the offering of Christ for us. And we see there that it was, it was because of the love of God. The love of Christ is, is demonstrated in that, in that giving of Himself up for us. So, so then, we this morning, those of us that know Christ as our Savior, we put our faith and trust in Christ entrusted Him to forgive us, to save us. We have been accepted by God because of Christ. Because of Christ's offering for us. And so we see Noah in this new beginning, this new life in a way, here on the earth. Every, everything's been wiped clean. There's no more hostile people trying to kill you. Um, it's only knowing his family. And so they have a new beginning and they begin with worship. And that's a, that's a good place for us, isn't it? To begin every day with worship. Because we are a worshiping people. Because of Christ. Because of what God has done for us. Because of His mercy and His grace. We are a worshiping people. That's why we're gathered today to worship the Lord. To remember Him. To thank Him. 
Hebrews 13 and verse 15 says, speaking again of Christ, through Him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. And so though we are, we are not bringing offerings you know, like of a, of a lamb or an animal of some kind, but we are bringing ourselves, as, as Romans 12 says, we are, we are a living sacrifice. And, and our, the testimony of our lips of praise to God is an offering to God. Uh, last week, I uh, had the news on just for a minute in the morning, and um, I saw an interview of uh, former pres- uh, Vice President Mike Pence. If you remember, he was the Vice President under President Trump. And uh, of all the politicians, he is one of the few that I would consider to have a, a genuine testimony of faith in Christ. There's a lot of the, a lot of the politicians talk about God in a general way, and and for the, for them, it, it really means nothing for the most part. They have no real testimony of saving faith. But uh, but from what what I can tell about uh, Mike Pence, he he is genuine. He he talks about a personal relationship with Christ, thanking God for uh, you know the Lord saving him through Christ. And he uh, was in this interview talking about. Uh, they were talking about this book. He's got a new book he's written called "In God We Trust." And of course, you know that's that's on the the the, um, the coins and the currency in the U.S. In God We Trust, although it's just in name only for most most people. In God We Trust. It's just one of those you know things you you can say whether you really trust God or not. But Mike Pence was making the point that that was a testimony of his family that through all the things that he experienced, that they trusted in God. And at the end of the book, he writes, thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So you don't hear that often on national TV. You, you just don't. You, don't. you don't hear that clear. Um, you, you hear people talking about God, but very rarely do they talk about faith in Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And so I, I just said that because it, I was reminded of that when I thought about here this the testimony, our testimony, our worship of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and thanksgiving for what He has done for us. And it, uh, it admonishes us to use opportunities that we have to give thanks to the Lord for His salvation. And whatever opportunities the Lord may give us, we, we need to... To be aware of those, and we need to, you know, think about them and think about what we can say. Well, uh, in this next section, God responds by committing Himself to Noah and and to um, all living things in the form of a covenant or a promise. Uh, he had earlier, in chapter 6 and verse 18, told Noah that he was going to make a covenant with him. In other words, he was going to he made a promise to him to, to deliver him. When he begins describing this judgment that's coming upon the earth in this flood, he says, I'll make my covenant with you. But now he's, after they've come off the ark, he's giving details about this promise. And we see that in, uh, in chapter at the end of chapter 8 and chapter all of uh, chapter 9 down through uh, verse um, 
verse 17, we see a description of this covenant. Now, in the Bible, we have a few covenants where God covet or makes a, a, a commitment, a promise to, to people. And uh, oftentimes, there's, there's uh, on the part of the, the humans or the men, there is a responsibility to respond to that covenant. And so there's often a, an element of uh, if you want the blessings of this promise, you must obey. You can think about the, the promise made with, with Noah, the, the Noahic covenant. And um, if the children of Israel were going to enjoy those promises, they had to uh, respond in obedience. And often they didn't, and we see judgment being brought upon that nation. But even during that, individuals within the nation of Israel could enjoy God's blessing on their own lives if they responded in faith. And that's what we see happening with a, with a remnant, we say. A, a, a small portion of that nation would remain believing and faithful to God. And God would work through that remnant, that, that elect, out of the elect nation, to carry his promises forward of the coming, ultimately the coming of the Messiah. And we'll see that in, in chapter 12 with Abraham as well, a covenant made with him. And, but with some of these covenants like this one, it is unconditional, where God commits himself to a promise with, with regardless of, of man or man's obedience, God is going to carry forward his promise. And that's what we... We see here, you'll notice in chapter 9, he's not, obviously he wants Noah and his family to respond and to, to obey and be in faith. But he's just saying what God's going to do, what God has committed himself to do. And so that's we we say is an unconditional covenant or promise made uh, to man. Well, as you get to uh, verse 9, we see... I'm sorry, chapter 9, we see God now speaking to Noah. And uh, he's already, we've already seen a, a revelation of what God's thinking. He's not going to destroy the earth again as he has done. And that, uh, notice verse 22, he talks about the, the cycles of earth is going to continue. Uh, seed time and harvest, we, we talk about the seasons. Uh, that's from God. God is committed to maintaining that, keeping that. Amen. And, uh, but then in chapter 9, he, he speaks to Noah and his sons. And he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so we see this commission, just very much the same words that we saw to, to Adam and Eve in the very beginning. And so this new beginning is, is in some ways like the very first beginning with Adam and Eve, but there's some differences introduced here as it relates to the animals. There's a, there's a change in the, in the relationship to the animals. And noted in verse 3 is that animals are now for food. Whether men were killing animals for food before, we just don't have the details of that. But now God is giving Noah and his family permission or a right to to take animals' life for food. Whereas before, 
it was in those first three, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So before they, they were not to kill the animals for, uh, for food, and that was the original in the garden plan, but now they can. And we see in verse 2, uh, another change here that's highlighted is that the animals are going to have a, a fear of man. And um, uh, so, so there is a, whereas in the beginning with Adam and Eve, is a positive statement about dominion over the kingdom and you will rule over, over you know, the, the animals. Now it's a negative concept. You're still going to, you're still going to uh, have, uh, how does he say it, uh, verse, uh, verse 2, um, into your hand they are delivered. In other words, there's still going to be a, a master or lord over the animal kingdom, but now there is a, a fear, it's a fear-based kind of relationship uh, that's introduced there. So, <clears throat> so there's some changes. And then in verse 4, he makes the prohibition against eating uh, raw blood or uh, animals' blood uh, that is that indicate of the life that's of the animal. The blood is is symbolic of the life of the animal, and so he's really highlighting this animals still have value, and um, the blood is God's going to use to represent that life. Um, Derek Kinder, in his um, commentary, has a has a useful statement here. I want to read for you. He says, life is in the blood, and God is the giver of life. Uh, disregard for the gift of life is an affront to the giver of life. This divine prohibition against eating blood also prepared humanity to appreciate the use of blood in sacrifice because belonging to God, it could be seen as his atoning gift to sinners and not theirs to him. Did you get the point there? When they brought the sacrifices, it wasn't saying, God, here, you know, this is mine, I give it to you. No, it's the recognition that this life belongs to God and He has given it to me so that I can give it to God. <laughs> and that's really true of everything, isn't it? Everything we have is of God. God has, has provided and he's, and he's enabled us to use it for His honor and glory and give it back unto Him. So, that that's a, that's a, a note here, and as you think about the, the the environment that they had lived in, Noah had lived in for you know five hundred years, with all the violence, the killing. Uh, no doubt, God is giving some new new instruction here, new requirements about the value of life, and he and he follows that up by saying the animal life is important, but human life is ultimately, or, or um, uh, that's a word you can use, it's like even greater, infinitely greater uh, of value because man is created in the image of God. They're, they're image bearers of God. And so he's in verse 5 and 6 introducing the death penalty for murder. Whether, whether an animal... An animal kills a man, that animal is to be killed. 
if a human, another human kills someone in, in murder, then th that life is to be taken. And so uh, by, by humanity, by, uh, by, uh, by man. And so he's establishing a, an authority and a responsibility for man governing man. We'd say human government. Uh, even to take life of someone who is a murderer, who takes life. And so no doubt that is to, to, you know, to deal with some of the previous problems that Noah had experienced and grew up with this just rampant killing and murder. And God is saying, no, um, there's value in life, especially in human life. And that is borne out in the New Testament. It's not just an Old Testament thing. Moses is later going to give more you know, regulations about, uh, about taking life and uh, capital punishment under the, under the Jewish law, the national law that's uh, under this theocracy of God. But in the New Testament as well, Paul is writing in a time when the government is totally corrupt. I mean, it's evil. It doesn't have faith in God. But Paul would write in Romans 13 and verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist, exist have been instituted by God. And so human government is something that God has given. Even if that government is not faithful to obey God or trust God or, or, or try to conduct themselves according to God's laws they are still in that position of authority and as as believers we are to recognize that god-given position he goes on in verse four to say but if you do wrong be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain so from god's perspective he still has a right to bear the sword in other words to exercise authority and he goes on to say, For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So it's clearly given here that, that uh, God instituted uh, a, a death penalty. And in our society, that becomes complex, it becomes difficult. There's always the danger of government misusing that power. And uh, we, you know, you see records of that all over. But there's also the the danger of not exercising that authority, and the impact that has upon society. And we see that here in South Africa, the the the, the, the de devaluing of life in people's minds. Well, again, his I believe the point here is that all life has value, but Mankind has significant greater value than the human, than the animal kingdom does because man is made in the image of God. Well, God commits himself here to no more global floods. He'll say again, uh, repeat this uh, to. Uh, to Noah and his sons that he's not going to, uh, to bring uh, destruction. Notice verse 11, chapter 9. He says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. 
and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And so God com commits himself to this, um, that he's not going to again um, destroy the earth by a flood. Although we know that he is, he is going to destroy the earth, but not by a flood. He's going to destroy the earth in the future by fire. And we have the record of that in the New Testament. That is his plan. But God gives Noah and his sons this sign, the sign of the covenant from verse 12 to verse 17. He talks about this rainbow uh, that we tend to just take for granted. It's just there, you know, and we, we expect it. We, we see it and we think, wow, you know, that's beautiful and we appreciate it. But it, it ought to be a reminder to us as believers, it ought to be a reminder to us that God delivered Noah in His grace uh, from the judgment of the flood and brought his, him and his family and the animals on the ark to safety. But also, it also, by extension, ought to remind us of God's grace towards us in delivering us and uh, giving us eternal life and giving us peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and God, God gives us you know, those kinds of reminders because we forget. <laughs> we need those reminders. God doesn't forget, but we do. And it helps us to remember. And so, so we have this new beginning. And God has uh, committed uh, to a new beginning for us in the future. And uh, that's, that's going to be a, a great time. It's hard for us to comprehend what this new beginning will really be like. But in Revelation chapter 21, we see that, um, that there's going to be a new beginning. He's, he's revealed that He's going to destroy the earth and what we know is the heavens, the, the heavenly bodies this, um, that we see. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he describes that. Um, and in the context of the flood as well, he, he says, just like God's Word spoke everything into existence, by that same Word, He brought judgment. And He's going to bring judgment again. But uh, for us, in, in Christ... And I, I, keep, I use that phrase because I hope you know what it means to understand. It means that we, we have personally trusted Christ as our Savior. And so therefore we are in Him. In His provision. We belong to Him. And because we belong to Him, He has committed Himself to us. He's covenanted to, with us to deliver us from judgment. From eternal judgment, I should say. It doesn't mean He's going to deliver us from all trouble and trials that we may have, but He's going to deliver us from eternal judgment and condemnation. In Revelation 21, verse 1, we read this record of the new beginning, the new, the new heaven and a new earth. This, old, this earth that we know, and sometimes that we hold, to, you know, hold on so tightly to, all of it's going to be burnt up. There's nothing going to remain. It's all going to be consumed. Notice verse 1, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, 
and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It uses that figurative language there of a, uh, of a, of a bride. You know, she, in our culture, she walks down the aisle, you know, dress and the veil and whatever, you know, just, you know, all fixed up, <laughs> adorned. Well, that's the way this new Jerusalem is going to be. It's going to be prepared by God for us to dwell in with Him. And it says, um, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Now that's a new beginning you can get excited about, isn't it? A new beginning with the Lord. And um, we, look, we look to that. Just as Noah... Look to his new beginning in faith, believing through difficulties, through trials, through things he couldn't see or imagine. We too, as people of faith, can walk with God in obedience, looking to God's promise he's made with us. Amen. Thank you, Father, for these truths this morning. Thank you for the record of the of the flood account and of of Noah in his obedience thank you how you were gracious unto him and thank you lord how you're gracious unto us an undeserving people that are able to know you because of christ and his work on the cross for us and lord we rejoice in that in the forgiveness that we have we thank you and praise you in jesus name amen, amen. Before Joshua comes and uh, we sing this closing uh, uh, song, I, uh, this first song we sang, we sang, Come Thou Fount. I think it was the first one. No, it was the second one. First. No, it was the first one. The last verse in that, uh, if you want to look there, Come Thou Fount, it's one of the, one of the verses that you don't oft, always see. Um, it says, um, Oh, that day when freed from sinning, He's talking about that day when we're going to be with the Lord, right? Uh, we just heard the description of in Revelation. I shall see thy lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen. Now that is a uh, seems like a paradox, doesn't it? <laughs> because we don't wash white linen in blood to get it clean, do we? Or make it white? Obviously, he's using the the, the analogy to the fact that our sins are cleansed. We're going, to, we're going to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ because we have the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ applied to our hearts. The blood-washed linen. How I'll sing Thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransom soul away. Send Thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. That's the expectation. That's the hope that we have in Christ. Amen.